0: That was really cool. That bass line was... <laughs> and the singing. And everything. Oh, it was amazing. Oh. Very nice. All righty. Hey, it's exciting to be looking at the story of God this year for a whole year. And uh, how can we live in the story? Um, so far, I'm going to go a bit forward. You guys are too far away from me. That's better. That's nicer. So I'm going to get close to to Alex here. Very good. Um, So far, I'll keep, I'll stand over there one day. So far, we've seen the purposes of God um, in creation. God's project is to create a world, a heaven and earth reality into which God will eventually come and dwell. And that's the whole aim and goal of the huge story of God at the end of, of this whole journey. God will dwell one day fully in his creation, renewed, Uh, and he's called human beings to be his agents, his co-workers, his angled mirrors, I've been saying, uh, to reflect his love and wisdom out into the world and reflect the praises of God up to God so that the whole creation can be a wonderful temple that God longs to come and dwell in. And we've seen that that project got right off track with the fall of humanity. But we saw last week uh, in Genesis 12 and to 15, that God calls Abraham and promises to bless Abraham and to give Abraham a land and a great family. And through Abraham, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And this is how God's going to get his project for creation back on track. So that's very exciting. And Abraham's family and the land that God is giving them are the beginning of God's purpose for Adam and Eve being fulfilled after all, that they would be able to be fruitful and multiply and bring flourishing or blessing right through the whole creation. So God's now going to bring that blessing through Abraham and his family. And down the track of the story, Jesus Christ will come out of that family and bring blessing to the whole world. God's promise to Abraham then continues in chapters 16 to 23, which we're looking at today. I've called this family problems, Ishmael and Isaac. And as we'll see, God is faithful to his promise. But this is despite the fact that the people who are bearing the promise are also part of the problem. And if we thought we got rid of the sin of Adam... Think again, because that whole issue of sin is going to continue. So let's look at Genesis 16 to 23. Uh, God has promised that in Abraham and Sarah and their family, all the families of the earth will be blessed. But then in chapter 16, it goes really, really badly wrong. Sarah, Abraham's wife, still hasn't had a child. And so Sarah says... Abraham look I've got this slave girl why don't you take her as your concubine and then the child that she bears really will belong to me and she'll be kind of a surrogate mother and the narrator says Abraham listen to the voice of Sarai and this echoes Genesis 3 where Adam listened to the voice of his wife Eve and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God had said not to eat. So in other words, this is like Abraham's fall moment. And he had the promise, he had the calling, and now he blows it. And so he takes Hagar, and Hagar conceives, and she's pregnant. And in that culture, a woman's place was to have children. And if you didn't, and somebody else did, they might scorn you, and it seems like Hagar is scorning Sarah. And so Sarah says to Abraham, we can't be dealing with this. You're going to have to get rid of her. And Abraham says, okay, get rid of her. And they send her away. And Hagar goes away from Beersheba on the road towards Egypt. And there's a spring on the way that she stops at. Uh, this is the next one is Egypt as it was at the time, it's um, uh, the middle of the Bronze Age. And she comes from Egypt, so it looks like she's fleeing home. She's Egyptian. And she stops at a spring beside the road, but the angel of the the Lord finds Sarah, finds Hagar, sorry, and they talk. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Wow. Now, this is the theme that creation is created as a temple, a house where heaven and earth meet, where God wants to come and dwell with his people. And here he is coming to be (coughs) with Hagar. And this is no ordinary angel. This was what we call in theology a theophany, which is when God takes on an embodied form to relate to human beings through that embodied form. In this case, the appearance is called an angel, uh, which means messenger, probably not with wings. Um, Often the text calls the appearance a man. In either case, it's God appearing in human form. And often the text switches from calling the appearance a man or calling the appearance an angel or calling the appearance a man. God. And here it says, verse 13, Hagar called on the name of the Lord who spoke to her. So the narrator calls the angel the Lord or God. Hagar herself says, I have seen the one who sees me. So both the narrator of the story and Hagar herself believe that God himself had appeared in human form. This is the first time that God appears this way in the story of God. And it will happen hundreds of times now through the story, culminating in the incarnation when Jesus takes on flesh and walks among us. Now, not not all angels are theophanies. Not all angels are appearances of God himself. But this one is. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord says, Hagar, slave of Sarai, God knows her name and her situation and he hasn't forgotten her. It's interesting, in the text, Abraham and Sarah never call Hagar by name. They only refer to her as the servant girl. And if God calls her by name, Hagar, and they think of her as a slave, God sees her as a person and they see her as an expedient way to have children but God sees her as somebody who he cares for he sees her differently he sees her and he sees her situation in verse 8 the angel of the Lord asks her Hagar where have you come from and where are you going this is very much like the way God talks to Elijah in 1 Kings 19, where Elijah is fleeing for his life in the wilderness. And the angel of the Lord comes and reaches out and touches Elijah and says, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he says to Elijah, get up and eat. And Elijah turns around and there's some food and a jar of water. And this is God caring for Elijah in his distress and his aloneness. And here we see the same thing with Hagar. God coming alongside of her. When they had rejected her, God turns up and talks with her and meets her in her need and gives her a promise. You're going to have a son. He's going to be a wild donkey of a man. In other words, no one's going to tame this, your son. No one will defeat him. Uh, but he will be your son and he'll be a great man. And Hagar responds with these beautiful, beautiful words. I have seen the one who sees me. I have seen the one who sees me. And if you're looking for art on the internet, this moment is huge millions and millions and millions of versions of this it's so amazing what she says and she goes back to Abraham and Sarah she bears Abraham a son and his name is Ishmael and where Abraham and Sarah were faithless God is faithful and so in chapter 17 Abraham circumcises himself and his son Ishmael as a sign of God's promise and God comes and says I'm going to call your wife Sarah she was called Sarai but now she's to be called Sarah so Sarah will get a new name because God's going to bless her and give her her son and Abraham laughs (laughs) verse 17 how can somebody as old as I am And my wife, Sarah, is 90 years old. How could we possibly have a son? And God says, "Um, yes, you're going to have a son. And Abraham says, wouldn't you rather make a great nation through Ishmael? (laughs) Wouldn't that be more (laughs) practical? (laughs) Um, No, your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him, an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And Abraham, and God is being generous here, I've heard your prayer about Ishmael. And I will make him into a great nation too. And multitudes will come from Ishmael. But the covenant line, the promise, will come through Isaac. And then in chapter 18, God appears to Abraham This is at the Oaks of Mamre again. We looked at this last week near Hebron. Three angels visit. Are they angels or are they men? Who are they? Abraham looks up and sees them standing there and he runs from his tent to meet them and patriarchs in those ancient times did not run. So clearly, Abraham knows this something serious is, is happening here. And he quickly puts on this huge meal. The, the text emphasizes the incredibly extravagant hospitality that Abraham shows to these visitors. <clears throat> and they say, at this time next year, Sarah will have a son. And I think maybe at that point, Abraham knows that these three are a revelation of God himself. And God has come to visit (coughs) in human form. It's not going to help me, unfortunately. Oh, why not? I'll try. Yeah. It probably... There was a God with Hagar moment right there. (coughs) That's so cool. Um, So God is, again, it's the Theophany. And uh, Sarah... In her tent, hears about the promise and laughs. And this is why later she will call her son Isaac, which means laughter. And Abraham knows this is real. This is going to happen. (coughs) And then God tells Abraham about the outcry he's heard from Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities down in the Jordan Valley where his nephew Lot has gone to live. And God says the sin is very grave in Sodom and Gomorrah. And what happens next is very interesting. (laughs) I'm very excited about this. And I've done so many talks on this. Uh, Verse 22, incredible. Abraham, it says, remained standing before God. But there's an ancient variation on the text in the Hebrew here, which you see reflected in the NIV footnote, which says the Lord remained standing before Abraham. And I think that fits the context better. And it's a very ancient variation. And I I think what's going on here is that God stands before Abraham to see what Abraham will say. In other words, God wants to hear what Abraham thinks about this situation in Sodom and Gomorrah before God goes ahead and, and, um, and acts. And that is so cool because here we now see Abraham interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, He's probably concerned about his nephew Lot who lives there and Abraham wants to encourage God to not destroy these cities um, on behalf of the righteous who are there. And Abraham says, far be it from you, God, to sweep away the righteous with the wicked. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And Abraham asks, what if there were 50 people in those cities? Would you spare them? And uh, God says, okay, if I can find 50 righteous people, I'll spare the city. What if you can find 45, says Abraham? (laughs) Okay, if there are 45 there, I will spare the city. And Abraham sounds like he's like bartering at a Middle Eastern bazaar because he works God all the way down to 10 and does some very good negotiating, I must say, Abraham. And God says, okay, if there are 10 in these cities, I will spare the city. Uh, And Abraham is acting as a prophet. And this is the beginning of this whole idea that uh, part of the prophet's task is to intercede for the people, we'll see Moses doing the same thing in Exodus 32. We'll see Jesus taking on that role ultimately as he intercedes for us. Um, and it's this whole idea that God wants to hear f- from his people. And now we are all prophets who get to pray. And God will make his plans in a way that will incorporate what we ask for. And I just find that absolutely brilliant. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. And the prophet Amos later says, God does nothing without revealing his plans to the prophets. In other words, to see what they think. And he wants to work with his people. He's that kind of God. He wants to partner with us. And he wants to be with us, but he also wants to partner with us. We have a say. He is able to include our thoughts and our um, Desires and concerns into what he does. And in chapter 19, God doesn't find 10 righteous people in Sodom. He finds shocking evil. And so Sodom is destroyed by fire. But God spares Lot and his family, which I think is Abraham's main concern. But Lot's wife famously looks back and turns into a pillar of salt. And then in chapter 20, Abraham and Sarah go travelling. As you do, they're nomads. They travel around with their flocks. And there's a huge, vast number of their herds at this point. And his uh, family is massive, his household. And he's travelling around. And he comes to Gerar. It's in modern-day Gaza where Abimelech is king. And like in chapter 12, with Pharaoh... Like back then, here, King Abimelech likes the look of Sarah. And I'm thinking, wow, she's 90 years old. How does that work? <laughs> but she must have not aged very quickly. And remember, Abraham's father, Terah, lived to 205. So there might be a different scale here at the beginning of the, of this story. People <coughs> live, live longer. It's a bit different. Anyway, I don't know. But Abraham... <laughs> is afraid that Abimelech will kill Abraham and take his wife Sarah. So he says, she's my sister. <laughs> and God comes to Abimelech and said, watch out, you've taken somebody else's wife and you are in severe danger. And so Abimelech is angry with Abraham because Abraham has deceived him and he returns Sarah to Abraham. Phew. <sighs> It's like every time God makes a promise, Abraham wobbles and wavers and almost blows the whole thing. And this could have turned out very, 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 very terribly where he would have lost Sarah. But in chapter 21, finally, finally, Isaac is born. And then what happens? Ishmael as the oldest son and Isaac as the younger son are living side by side and you know anything about the sibling uh, sibling rivalry theme of Genesis, you'll know, ah, this could be trouble, Cain and Abel, and so on, Ishmael and Isaac now, and Sarah reads it straight away, and she's frightened that Ishmael is going to be bullying Isaac, and maybe even harming Isaac, and the word mocking here can include the idea of beating, and it looks like Sarah fears that Ishmael is going to do bad things to Isaac. And so Sarah says, they've got to go. And Abraham agrees again and sends Hagar and Ishmael away into the desert. Gosh. And they wander in the wilderness of Beersheba. Oh, gosh. And God looks after them at the point where it looks like Ishmael is about to die. And I said that previous one with Hagar is on the internet in terms of artworks, massive. This is 10 times more massive in terms of the number of artworks done about this, and this is one of them. Extraordinary uh, interest in this story because at this point the angel of God Calls to Hagar from heaven, which is just there, right? Heaven isn't a long way away. It's just there. Um, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. And God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and they were saved. And God affirms his promise to make Ishmael a great nation God will be with him, and he, he grows up in the wilderness of Paran and becomes great with a bow. He's going to be a warrior. And in chapter 21, 21 to 33, Abraham plants a tamarisk tree in Beer-sheba, and builds an altar to the Lord there. And Beersheba's where a lot of this action's been happening. And it's also where um, the last charge of the Australian Light Horse Brigade, happened in World War I got that next slide yeah that's the same place so we have as Australians we have a link to this place ourselves and um, the interchange from the M7 and M4 is where that's the the, the horse is celebrated um, and after that Genesis 22 is one of the strangest stories it's the binding of Isaac Um, Sometimes people call it the sacrifice of Isaac, but Isaac actually isn't sacrificed. And part of the meaning of this strange story is that Abraham has messed around with God so much and now he finally has his son with Sarah. Uh, And this is some kind of a test to see whether Abraham will really, really trust God instead of trusting him a bit and then running away. And the story has not been simply that Abraham is getting better and better and growing in his faith. No, it's Abraham receives the promises of God, he believes them, but then he nearly throws them away. And then he does it again, treating Hagar and Ishmael with disdain in order to further his purposes with his son Isaac. And God is saying, that's not on. That's not how it should be. And God says to Abraham, chapter 22, verse 2, take your son, your only son, I guess Ishmael's gone by now, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain, I will show you. And Abraham goes off with Isaac to Mount Moriah, And I don't know how this happened. I think probably Isaac is 13 at this stage. And how does that happen with a man close to 100 overpowering a 13-year-old to put them on an altar? And surely Isaac would have known what was happening and fought back. The whole thing is just extraordinary. Um, But Abraham... Does it? And later tradition says that this place is the place that that David bought so that he could build the temple. And then his son Solomon built the temple right here. Amazing. But, of course, Isaac is not sacrificed. (laughs) And at the last moment, the angel of the Lord says... Here's a ram with its horns caught in a thicket. Sacrifice the ram instead. Yeah. And Isaac is spared. And in the next chapter, chapter 23, Sarah dies and is buried. Uh, Well, and Abraham still doesn't own land, but he's got a little piece of land that he barters for. And so he can have a plot of land near Hebron. This is Hebron next slide up here this is a thousand years later but it's very similar to what it was in the time of Abraham this is actually David going to Hebron to make it yeah so but there it is and so that's where he buries Sarah in a cave And so the family of Abraham has a little place at least that they can call their own. And the story goes forward from there. So in this story so far, at one level, Abraham's a great example of faith, but at another level, he's not. Um, He's faithless and disobedient again and again and again and again. Um, Same with Sarah and Lot. And the story has this, like, dark twist woven into it that comes from the initial dark twist of Adam's sin. And that's still a problem. And the bearers of the promise are still carriers of the problem. And there's a sense in which this, the whole story of God now will be the same. Um, and we see right throughout the Old Testament... It's a story of wonderful promises by God and him being faithful to those promises. But it's also a story of the family of Abraham believing, but then rebelling, of trusting and then worshipping idols. And yet through it all, God is unendingly faithful to the point where he will give his only son to die right here at that place we looked at where Isaac was on the altar. Amazing. And when Paul says in Romans 8, God did not spare his only son but gave him up for us all, he's referring back to Genesis 22. That what God asked Abraham to do was what he was going to do. He was foreshadowing that. And so the whole story of God's faithfulness to his promise culminates with the death of his only son on the cross. So how do we live in this story? That's what we're trying to figure out in this series. Um, part of living in the story is telling the story and as Christians, we tell the story again and again and again. Our gatherings are all about telling the story, Easter, Christmas, whatever, you know. It's, that's how we celebrate. We tell the story of God to celebrate God's faithfulness to us throughout generations. God is everlasting to everlasting. He has kept his word. And so how do we tell the story? We tell it with two aspects. Firstly, our failure. And yet, his faithfulness, his love, his compassion. And many times in the Bible, people look back over the whole story and tell the whole story. And two of those places are Psalm 105 and Psalm 106. And they look back over the whole history of Israel of how the people were faithless and rebelled, and yet God listened to their cry and saved them and yet they rebelled again they even sacrificed their children to local idols and yet when they called out to God in repentance and faith he saved them again and again and again and again and Psalm 106 just goes through that whole history and says verse 45 for their sake God remembered his covenant his promises to Abraham Out of his great love. That's the word kesed, which means loving kindness. Out of the abundance of his loving kindness. Whatever Israel was doing, God was still working, still faithful to his people. And the psalmist tells this great story of Israel and says, Look, we're not proud of it. In fact, it many, in many ways we're ashamed but the psalm ends with praise be to the Lord the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting let all the people say Amen praise the Lord because we've told the tr- story truly we've told it from our side all the, the ways we've messed up but then we've also told it from God's side That he's just gone on forgiving us and restoring us and sending the prophets to intercede for us and call us back. And he's held out his arm to us, wanting to love us, wanting to be in relationship with us. Praise be to the Lord, for he is good. He is faithful to his people. Amen. That's how we tell the story. And that's how we as the people of Christ are to tell the story of the church. The story that continues after Jesus and the apostles of God doing wonderful things and yet the church doing things which were terrible. Terrible things in the name of Christ. Starting wars, the Inquisition, witch hunts. And yet, look at what God has done. God has not let us go. He is still with us and working on our behalf and on behalf of the whole world. And we need to remember that we are not the heroes or heroines of this story. God is. And God is faithful. And he goes on being faithful. And it all merges and meets in Jesus, particularly his death. And we tell the story not just to say, oh, my goodness, how do we get it so wrong? But to say, thank you, Lord. You are a God of compassion and mercy. And we trust you and we entrust ourselves to you. Praise your name as long as we live. That's the first thing. And secondly, despite our failures and the way we keep messing up god still wants to work with us <laughs> this is a mystery <laughs> who can understand this wonderful god that we have we need to realize that right from the start genesis chapter 1 god is the sort of god who wants to work with human beings he wants to work through us to bring his wisdom and flourishing and goodness and beauty into creation as his stewards doing justice and mercy, looking after creation, bringing God's love and care into creation on his behalf, but with him as he partners with us. And so that means that God wants to work through human beings. He's almost defined as the God who wants to work through human beings. This is the story. You know, he wants to work with and through us, sorting out the world, bringing flourishing, healing. And so when the original pair, Adam and Eve, fail and sin and turn to worship the creature rather than the creator, God doesn't say, let's scrap this whole idea of working through human beings. No. He chooses another fresh pair of human beings, Abraham and Sarah and their family, and says, I'm going to work through them. But I know... That the twist of Adam is in them too. That they have the problem of the fall in their, in their beings. But I still want to work with them. <laughs> wow! And all who have faith in Christ are children of Abraham and heirs of the promise. And even though we keep messing up, God still wants to work through us. I've been thinking about Romans eight twenty eight. We know that God works all things together for good with those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And you may not know that translation. That's not the translation I learned as when I was younger. But this is actually what the Greek says. The Greek uses the, uh, the verb, which means working with us. Uh, right in the middle, Soon erge. erg is the work bit. Soon is the with. God works all things for good with those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. What's Paul talking about? In the verses immediately before, uh, he's talking about the prayers of the people of God in the midst of the darkness of this world with the Spirit praying with us. And so we know that God works all things together for good through and with those who love him and are praying And this is a picture of God inviting us to share with him, despite our brokenness, in the same way that he invited Abraham. Abraham, what do you think I should do? He wants to hear our prayers in a real sense, like standing in front of Abraham, he stands in front of us and says, I'd love to hear what you think. What are your desires? What are you longing for? What do you want to see happen? Because I love that. I'm that kind of God. That's how I set up the whole creation so that I can work through my people. And faith is important in that, yes. But even when we mess up, he still works with us. He can work with us. He's powerful. He's sovereign. And God is inviting us because he wants to work with and through us to bring healing and flourishing to creation. And according to Genesis, the purpose that we are given, those who were called according to his purpose, the purpose is not simply that we belong to God, but that God will work through us as his image. And Paul goes on to talk about the image of God. Jesus, the son of God, is the true image of God. And we're being conformed in his likeness, meaning Jesus is the one through whom God worked. And saved the world and brought flourishing and love and truth and justice and peace through him. But in him, by his spirit, by faith, we are in that same task and that same calling, which was the calling of Adam and Eve from the beginning, was the calling of Abraham and Sarah. And yes, faith is essential, but we don't have to be perfect. We can bring our weakness we can muck it up. It, it, it won't stop God wanting to work with us. He's that kind of God. And I just think it's amazing when we look back through history at what God has achieved through Abraham and Sarah and their family, despite them doing what they did. And it's amazing what God has achieved through the church despite sin and terrible things. It's amazing what God can do, even through us. And I hope that our church will continue to be a church through whom God does amazing things, despite us, in some cases. Certainly, our faith, again, is important. And I love funerals, because a Christian funeral, it's sad, but you see all the ways that God has worked through that person's life. Not that they don't have flaws, And their faith, yes, was important. But God worked in and through and with them to bring all kinds of good into the world. Okay, so this is living in the story of God. Amen.